0: So, Lord, we uh, give you praise and thank you for your grace and tell you, Father, that um, we are often slow to learn and, Lord, we have things within us that resist as you teach. And I pray that, Lord, you'd kick through that, crash through that, and uh, meet us in this place this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You be seated. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to Matthew, thank you, John. You did such a great job. You didn't even wave at the camera, man, for all the people at home. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, We're going to get there eventually. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question. Do you remember the, the very first time or do you remember where you were the very first time that you saw the greatest work of art ever created by man? Or maybe another way to think about it is the most memorable work of art ever created by man. So think about it by, for a minute. Because I'm not talking about like the birth of Venus. And who, who did the birth? I think it was Botticelli or I may not be saying that right. But then there is the great work of art by Michelangelo, the creation of Adam. I mean, think about that. Remember the first time you saw that or The Kiss by Clement? Or maybe even The Persistence of Memory by Dolly? Salvador Dali, or possibly uh, one of Van Gogh's work of art, like the potato eaters, or something like that. But I'm not talking about any of those. I'm talking about the most memorable work of art ever created since the beginning of time. And what I'm talking about is dogs playing poker. I mean, think about it. I mean, when I say to you, like, potato eaters, you might have a hard time thinking about, well, what was in that painting, like what was in it, like who was in it, how many people were in it. But if I tell you dogs playing poker, you have no confusion about what I'm talking about. I mean, you can remember it as distinctly as when your mom first nailed that carpet on the wall in your living room of dogs playing poker. And I think the reason that we remember, and you know what I'm talking about, you know, the bulldog with the cigar in his mouth and their little paws are holding cards and chips and they got like beer and bourbon on the table. And I think the reason that we remember that so much is because it's such a contradiction of nature. Like, we love dogs, and so when we we make dogs human and we give them the vices of man... It's like, you know, dogs, you don't see dogs going around conning people out of cigarettes or cigars, you know. It's against their nature. That's not their nature to do that. It's not their nature to have a vice like gambling, and they're going to gamble away their kibbles and bits, you know. And because it's such against their nature, it sticks with us. It's this irony of, wait, that doesn't go together. I had a professor in seminary who used to say that, uh, that preaching is like a dog playing checkers, that when you see a dog playing checkers, you don't criticize their game. You're just amazed that they're playing. And that's true about preaching too, and it's true about this painting, but it's also true about what we're talking about today because we've been in the Ten Commandments. Actually, this is the last Sunday that we're going to be in the Ten Commandments, and next week we're going to start our Advent series. And so we're on the very last commandment, and this commandment... uh, Many of you may have grown up in a tradition where the commandments were seen as don't, 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 don't. And they were, but when Jesus came, he ignited something with the commandments. Instead of just seeing what we're not supposed to do, the commandments were this mirror that reflects now to who we truly are. So let me read the commandment for you. This is Exodus chapter 20. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your na- to your neighbor. See, let me say just right up front I gonna. here's here's the kicker. If if you are not interested in the rest of the sermon, here it is in a nutshell. Jesus is not trying to get you to stop coveting for coveting's sake. Jesus is not trying to get you to be better at this, to covet less in 2021 than you did in 2020. It's not like Jesus is saying that when you covet, it gives you like big spiritual hips and you're going to have a really hard time getting through the gates of heaven. So if you covet less, slim down so that when you get to heaven, you're going to just slide right on in a lot easier than everybody else. How embarrassing is that going to be for you that that angel's gown makes you look fat? No, he's not doing that. He's, he's saying, I want you to stop covenant, coveting because coveting takes you away from who you truly are. It's against your nature to be that way because you've been born into a new kingdom now. And in this new kingdom, you've been born with a new identity. And this new identity, get this, if you're in Christ, this is your nature. You've been born into contentment. You've been born into peace. The old is gone, the new has come. And the new is so unfamiliar to us that it's almost impossible for us to live in it, even though it's true. So when we hear do not covet, it's not stop coveting as much as why are you trading the contentment that is yours for something that takes you away from your contentment? See, we've been born into a kingdom. Coveting says, in essence, if I only had. But you know what the new kingdom is? Is that I have been born into abundance and I have everything. You see the two differences? Let me try to explain. I'm going to read you a bunch of scripture verses. So write them down if you want. But you have a new nature. The old is gone, the new has come. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, it says, put on the new self. It means you have the new self, which is the light in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. That is who we are in Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, And having put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Get this, our new nature is now an image of the one who gave us this new nature. And I can promise you that God is completely content, and God is at peace in 1 Corinthians Chapter three, verse sixteen. Do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And we talk about this a lot. That at the cross Jesus cleaned me up; I'm forgiven. But at the resurrection, He filled me up. I wasn't made just to be clean and forgiven. I was made now to be the the recipient of a new spirit, the Spirit of the Living God that dwells within me. Ephesians chapter three, verse sixteen. Pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to, be, to have strength and power through the spirit in the inner man. That with that spirit comes strength and power. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Our inner man. That is the truest thing about us. We have been given a new nature, and that new nature, contentment is its language. Peace is his language. And that's why when covening, when we covet, it's actually like the enemy coming in and, and, and pickpocketing us. He's, he's stealing away the very thing that he has no right to touch. But when he gets us to covet, he causes us to put down the very thing that we have. So let's stop for a minute and let's just kind of talk a little bit about what coveting is. Because... Uh, it's not a real common word in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament. It's only in the Bible a couple of times. And I'm guessing that it's not a word that you use a lot. It's not a word that we all kick around and go, how you doing today? Oh, you know, I'm just really coveting. But uh, so let's talk about it. Coveting, uh, that word actually is a word that can also be translated desire. It is our desires. And desires aren't a bad thing, but often we do bad things with our desires. And coveting is uh, that place where either I desire too much for the wrong things or I desire too little for the right things. And if you're like me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rob our little set here, all right? I've got one of these in my life. Now, mine, it's not a cookbook. Mine is a lot bigger. But I've got the, I call it the, the my book of I want's. And I've got, I've got lots of I want. Oh, isn't that lovely? Little. What do I want? I want lots for me. There ain't nobody that I think about more than I think about myself. And if you want to know what I want about me, all you got to do is ask. I want lots of things for me. I want lots of things from relationships. I want lots of things for you for me. Like I want to be in a good relationship for you, but for me, and like I can tell you all, I got a whole chapter on my expectations and desires for relationships, from friendships to my marriage relationship to my relationship with my children to relationship with strangers. I even have a whole chapter on my relationships with people that drive in cars around me. I have huge expectations of them. Last night I was on, I was on my way to Walgreens, and we were at a red light. Okay. And I was in the turning lane, turning right lane. There was no sign that said, don't turn on red. And there was no traffic, none whatsoever. And the person in front of me just would not go. And I had this moral dilemma. Do I hawk and urge them to take a right on red? I'll let you figure out if I did or not. But I got a chapter on that in here. I've got a whole chapter here on what I want from success. And it's not just money. Uh, it's not just things like I, monetary success. It's also reputation. I got a huge chapter here on what I want my reputation to be like and what I want from my career and what I want from the hard work that I do. I got a whole chapter here on just stuff. I mean, come on, let's just get base now. Like the kind of house, the kind of car. Do you know that I have such Problems with coveting when I go to the beach and I see that people own places there. Like there's real people that own real houses at the beach. Good Lord, it's like a fantasy to me. Like, but I've got that whole chapter. But coveting is not just about desire, it's about me desiring what you have. Coveting goes a little bit deeper because here's what coveting does. Coveting says, well, I just want to do props today, but coveting says what I have is not enough. I have become discontent with what I have, and I want what you have. See, we don't see what we have as enough anymore, so I don't have what it takes for me to have contentment. So I start looking outside myself and I start trying to find out what you have because you seem very content. We'll talk about that in a minute. But listen to the verse again. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Okay, I get that. Don't covet their wife. I get that, that's adultery. Don't covet their servant, meaning don't covet their lifestyle. Okay, I get that. The ox and the donkey may be a little outdated, all right? And maybe some of you are like, Way into collecting donkeys, you know. I don't know, but if it doesn't cover the things that you covet for, look at the very one or anything. So, I gotta can we just all confess that we're like we're coveting pros, like we've all got PhDs in this, like we've done it more times than we can count, so we can do it without even thinking because we covet each other's lifestyles on Instagram. Uh, on Facebook, we, cover each, we covet each other's personalities. Have you not been with somebody and walked away feeling bad about yourself because you felt so good about them? You're like, they're so funny at parties and I can't seem to get anybody to laugh. Hmm. That we, we covet, have you ever taken a personality test? Have you ever taken an Enneagram test? Y'all participate with me because the people at home, I can't see your hands. Okay, you have. Have you ever taken that Enneagram test and go, "Oh." I wish I was another number. I don't like my number. I want to be your number. No, unless you're a seven. A sevens, we're arrogant enough to believe that we're the best number. (laughs) It's our problems. Have you ever coveted somebody else's looks? Have you ever looked in the mirror and go, not fair? Have you ever looked at somebody else and go, ah, or somebody else's gifts, their spiritual gifts, or their success? Have you ever coveted other people's friendships? Have you ever been out like picking up takeout at a restaurant because you're gonna go home by yourself and eat and you walk into the restaurant and there's a group of friends laughing way too loud and you hate them? Like, do you ever covet somebody else's boyfriend or their girlfriend or their spouse or their things? Do you ever covet somebody else's health or their life situation or even their hairstyle? I have a friend who cuts hair. We were talking that I. she said, you know, when I first started cutting hair, I did a lot of youth, like teens. And one day this teenager came in and this was back when Sting, the musician, this is after the police. Some of y'all don't remember that. It was awesome. Go back, read. And uh, so Sting was like the dude. He's still the dude. Come on, let's just be honest. Like, how can you be 80 and look that good? And uh, he came in and said, this is what I want. And he pulled out of his back pocket a picture of Sting. And she goes, oh, sit down, young man, and I have to explain to you what a receding hairline is because I can't cut that into your hair. But look at that. Like He coveted somebody else's hair loss, not knowing that. Okay, so here are five signs that you are coveting, that you have coveted, you will covet. When you spend money you don't have for things you don't need. I call that the garage sale phenomenon, that I find something I cannot live without and I put it on my credit card and a year later I'm selling it for a quarter in my driveway. When you purchase things you don't need because you, they're on sale for a limited time. When you complain about things like your house, your spouse, or your job to others. When you use phrases like, if only I had or what I wouldn't give for, or when you cannot genuinely be happy for someone who has experienced the success in an area where you've struggled. You see what's happening there? Every, all five of those is saying, you have walked away from the contentment that is your nature. That is your nature. And now you're walking in the flesh by comparing yourself to other people and coveting what they have. And Jesus is saying to us today, Danger, danger, danger. In James chapter 4, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What James is saying is, you weren't made for that. And coveting is dangerous because it robs away from us the very thing that we can never lose, but we refuse to walk in. It's like you've lost your car keys and you tear your house apart and you're in complete despair and you plop down on the couch after hours of searching and you hit your leg and realize they're in your pocket the whole time. Coveting you have if you have Christ. I mean, peace you have, coveting you have too. Coveting blinds us from those things. So remember, Jesus isn't trying to get you better. Jesus is trying to wake us up to who we are. We weren't made to languish in discontent and comparison and coveting. We were made for peace and contentment. So how do, we, how do we walk away from coveting? How do we loosen its grip on our lives as people that are walking with Christ now and walk in the contentment and peace that is ours? Okay. So let's take a few minutes and let's talk about it. And we're going to talk about it by looking at a parable that Jesus told. And uh, this parable is in Matthew chapter 20. And I think it starts in verse 1. I think that's verse 1. It may be verse 1B. But this is uh, a parable that maybe you've heard, maybe you've not heard before. But it's a parable about um, Jesus talking about this uh This guy who owns a vineyard and uh, work needs to be done in the vineyard. And so he goes into the marketplace um, to find workers to come into his vineyard. And then we're going to hear the story. But uh, I want you to understand in this time, and this, when Jesus is telling the story, it was not uncommon for there to be a city center or a village center where men that don't have regular work would go and they would post up on a corner. And people that need day laborers would come and hire people to come and work for a day. Okay, so that's this situation that's happening here. Verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Now stop there and notice that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. So what is this parable about? So when we read parables and we see that, we realize, okay, wait, we got to step back because the main character in this whole story is the landowner. And what we're going to learn about the landowner is going to teach us about the kingdom of God. Are you with me? Okay. So the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. Begin with the last one hired and go on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble about the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I will give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Let's pray before we, we tear this apart. Lord, We need your wisdom now. We need you to guide us, and we need you to convict us, penetrate our hearts, Lord, with your truth, Uh, Lord, to set us free, to live in the nature of who we are in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So the kingdom of God is like this landowner, but we don't want to miss the fact that kind of the punch and the conclusion of this story was that there were a bunch of workers that were hired in the marketplace that seemed very content to be hired. And they seemed very content to get a day's wage for a day's labor. They were happy to do that. They were going to go home to their families that night with a pocket full of cash for a day's work. I'm sure there were many days that they didn't have work, so they seemed very content. And their contentment turned into grumbling, and their peace turned into fighting. So there are only two hopes for us dealing with the way that we covet. One is understanding who our father is, and two, understanding outrageous grace. So let's look at the, the first. So if you were to if you were one of the people listening to Jesus say this and you were living in this time, you would have immediately recognized that Jesus is telling a pretty outrageous story. Like, you know, it's it's like dogs uh, playing poker. They would say, that's that, that's like, no, there's no way. And the first thing you would notice is that the landowner uh, goes out into the marketplace. A landowner would have never gone out into the marketplace. If you could afford to own land, then very seldom, if ever, did you actually manage your land or worked that land. You would also have managers that would do the dirty work, which is going into the marketplace to that corner where all those day laborers are working and hiring them up. You would never do that. So why would Jesus tell this story this way? Well, the first thing that Jesus is saying to us is I want you to understand your father and that your father is a father who goes. What that means is you have a father that is in pursuit of you. You have a father that's not sitting in heaven going, I hope they find me. You have a God that is intentionally coming after you. And we've been talking about it since Corona, that you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. What does chosen mean? But the fact that God chose, we find it throughout all of scripture. God chose Israel. Jesus told his disciples, I chose you. You didn't choose me. We have a choosing God. In fact, I want you to stop right now and I want you to think about this. When you think about what got you here this morning or your spiritual journey, think about it. Where has God been pursuing you? Even your own story is about a God who's moving after you. And I've heard people say, well, what you're talking about is predestination. Well, go study it. And uh, people say, well, I I don't know if I can embrace predestination. And I'm saying, you know what? Your ability to, to embrace that or your desire to embrace that and all your questions about the tribes in Africa and who will go to heaven, I can honestly tell you I do not know. And I can tell you what, teach, what, preach, uh, what the scriptures teach on predestination and where I stand on that. But I don't want the, any of that to be a distraction from the reality, the fact that God is coming after you. That we have a God that is on a move. God is not passive. God is not a responder. God is an initiator. And he's going into the marketplace to initiate, initiate and he's coming after you. And if you're like me, that's unnerving. I mean, I really, I would rather God be over there and I get to kind of choose the, the, the depth and the level of our interaction. Like, I love the idea personally that God lives here in this chapel and that I only really have to make an hour for him on Sunday morning. Like, we're gonna go see God. The idea that God is coming after me and following me home and standing over my shoulder and going, what are you up to? That's That's unnerving. Because there's two things that I know about God, if you've been in church at any time, that makes his pursuit of me completely unnerving. One is that God is totally in control. And two is he knows everything. I just think personally, it's just so much easier to date God than it is to live with God. I mean, you know, when you're dating somebody, like, you get to kind of define what the narrative is, you. You get to dress up. You get to look good. You get to, you know, you get to, you get to decide how this is going to work and what parts of you are you going to reveal. But when you're living with somebody, it's kind of hard to hide all that stuff. And it's a terrifying thing because everyone in this room has something to hide. We all do. We all have things that we've said that we wish we wouldn't have said, We've all had things that we've done that we wish we wouldn't have done. We all have things that we've thought <laughs> that are fantasies, that the things that we wish that nobody ever hears, and yet God sees all of that. And that would be absolutely unbearable in our faith if we didn't see the next outrageous thing. And look at the next outrageous thing, that the landowner that he goes into the marketplace early in the morning. Why is that significant? Because he comes back again at nine in the morning. And then he comes back again at noon. And then he comes back again at three. And then he comes back at five. He comes back at five. The workday ended at six. I mean, that gives him just about enough time to go out into the field and say, what are we doing? Uh, And then the day's over. But let me tell you what it meant to the people that were listening to this. If you went in early in the morning to the marketplace, and everybody knows you're hiring, you're getting the pick of the litter. You're actually getting to pick the best workers. And those workers have reputations, and the people know who they are. But if you went back at nine, you realized the best workers have already been hired, So I'll settle for the 9 o'clock workers. Like, y'all are still good. You're you're competent. You're not as good as, you know, A, but this is the B team. But if you go back at noon, you realize that you're not just getting the A or the B. Now, you're kind of in the C category. This is... This is the workers that maybe slept in this morning because they drank too much last night. They're just now getting to the marketplace corner. Like maybe they'll get some work out of them like these. But you go back at three. Now you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. And if you show up at five, these are the people that nobody wants. These are the people that are the complete rejects. These are the people that are not qualified to do anything. And that's why nobody's hired them all day long. And this is what I want you to hear is that Jesus is on the move and what he's coming after is the unqualified. He's completely coming after those that have made a mess of their lives. He's coming after those that the world could see everything, the world would say, you're not worth it. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He didn't come for the people that had it all together. And that's good news because none of you have it all together. It's also bad news because it's what, pr- it's what pressures us to covet. But listen to what Anne Lamott. I don't know if you guys have ever read anything about Anne Lamott. Um, she has made some one-liners that just absolutely slay me, which makes me want to read everything that she writes. One is, cussing is the lowest form of prayer. Think about it. It's true. When we cuss, we're crying out. And, uh, and I've prayed a lot in my life. She also says, laughter is carbonated holiness. I Think about it. Just write that down, and it's going to hit you about 2 o'clock this afternoon. But she said, everyone is screwed up. Everyone is broken, clingy, and scared, even the people who seem to have it more or less together. They are much more like you than you would believe. So... Try not to compare your inside to their outside. This is so critically important because um, if I don't believe that I am unqualified for the Father's pursuit, if, if I, or should I say, if I begin to believe that I, I earn it, then I'm forfeiting my chance for grace see because we have this father that's in pursuit and he comes after us even though he knows we're not qualified and here's the second thing is grace is so offensive he paid the first last he lined up the least qualified and gave them the same that he was about to give the ones that worked all day long and they got mad because here's what they said not fair this is not fair because inside of me, I have a deep need for everything to be fair. I remember when, if you have ever had kids uh, and you have ever done anything with your kids to where you had to divide something, like we only have one Laura bar and I've got two sons that both want half, you're never going to break that bar even enough. All you're doing is you're about to breed a fight because what are they going to say? Like that one has more crumbs on it than the other. It's just not fair. I think I saw this in a movie once and it saved our family where you let one break the bar and let the other choose. So they are both motivated for fairness. That may be all you get from the sermon today. You're welcome. (laughs) What does fair say? Fair says, I love comparison. I absolutely love comparison. But here's the funny thing about comparison comparison, which leads to coveting, also means that I get to choose the topic on which we compare. Because when I compare myself to you, if I want to feel better about myself, then I'm going to compare a category that I believe that I'm superior. And I believe that it is fair that I'm better than you in that category. And if I don't want to feel better about myself, then I'll I'll choose a category that you win. And underneath both of those things here, here it is underneath both of them is that we believe that we don't have what it takes to live a full life. We don't. And so we're scrambling to get our fair share. In fact, underneath that is this shame. And let me tell you what this shame does. This shame, it, it, it's beyond that I've done something wrong, so I know I'm not qualified for Jesus' grace. That is complete mercy. It's not that I've done something wrong. Shame is that I am something wrong. I love uh, to read Brene Brown, and she talks about shame. She goes, "I, I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Get those words there, that I am flawed, therefore I'm unworthy of love, and I'm unworthy of belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection this deep sense inside of me that there is something wrong with me. And so comparison and coveting is me scrambling to try to figure out what can I get to cover up that shame to where now I qualify to belong and I qualify to be loved. And Jesus wants to come and set us free from that. And how does he do that? He pours unbelievable grace on us. And this is going to be remarkably simple. Jesus kisses us and says, "Look at me that's it. That's it. You want to stop coveting, or do you want coveting to stop stealing away your contentment? Let him kiss you. And what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Is Jesus here kissing booth? Corona? Oh no. <laughs> Let me try to explain it, and I'll share one verse with you and then I'm going to wrap up, okay. When I was in college um, I was always scrambling to make money. Um, Our family didn't have a lot of money. And so I would spend my summers in the college town, which is, if you've never done that, it's actually, that's where the fun is. Um, But I worked at this children's home in the summer, and I was their summer activity director. And uh, so I was the lifeguard at the pool, and also I was the coach in the gym, and I would take them on field trips. And... Usually, it's about the beginning of May, the director of the children's home would come to me and throw me this big catalog. And in this catalog, you could order all kinds of activities for the kids. And she would say to me, she goes, hey, just spend whatever you want. Just get them a bunch of stuff and have fun with them. And uh, I said, great. So I would order from the catalog. Now, almost all the kids that were in this children's home, the ones I worked with were kind of the age's of about nine up to about 13, or right before adolescence. And all these kids were there because both their parents were incarcerated, that both their parents were in prison, and they had no place to go. They had no family, and so these children ended up here in this home. So I always tried to order outrageous stuff for them, like, and we would just do those crazy stuff. And one summer, I ordered these rockets. And uh, I don't know if you've ever done this, that you have this battery pack and a little platform, and you put these rockets on it, and they have little, I don't know, explosive things in them. That's a good thing for kids, isn't it? We're going to blow stuff up. And, you know, you have five, four, three, and they just shoot up and go to the moon. But they have to assemble them, and then we would have, we, you know, because you're always stretching these activities out because you got them all day. So we're going to paint them. And there was this one 10-year-old girl who was remarkably quiet, um, and uh, she was trying to be very precise in painting her rocket that she was going to send to the moon that was going to have her name on it. And she screwed it up and spilled her paint. And I go over and I go, "It's okay. And she looked at me and she grabbed her rocket and started banging it on the table. And she started to say these words, I mess up everything. I screw everything up. I've always screwed everything up. And that's why they don't love me. And she just started crying. I couldn't get her to make any more rockets. Now, I don't have to explain to you what's going on with her. You could probably write the narrative. I don't know the details of the narrative. But go with me on a journey. And here's the journey. What is going to happen in her life when she walks out of that children's home at 18 and looks at the world and says, somewhere out there I'll find something that will make me belong and something that will make me feel lovable? What will that journey look like? Because I'm telling you, if you don't know this yet, There's nothing outside that door that's going to do those two things for you. Nothing. How tragic. But how tragic is how much we all relate to her. And when Jesus comes in and kisses us, this is what Jesus does. He says, you belong. And you're worthy of love. That's what grace does. No matter how much you've tried to screw it up, And he even challenges us. Do you know that in Ephesians chapter 3, it says, I dare you, I dare you to grasp it. And that word grasping is like a small child hugging their mother. Grasp what? How wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of God. And you know what he promises is if you'll come and hug your daddy like that as he kisses you, it will fill you up to the full. And that Greek word for fill, you know what I love about it? Because it means filled. It means complete. It means to the very brim. There's where our contentment is. There's where we rest. There's where we know, oh, I don't have to compete. I don't have to compare. And I don't have to covet because I have everything I need for life and godliness because the one who loves me has kissed me and said, I belong and I am loved. And now I can go out that door into a world as one who is loved instead of one who is looking for love. And you know what a dangerous person is? A dangerous person is a person that goes out that world and says, I have something to give. That is a dangerous world. Somebody who walks out that door and they're content. Somebody who has peace. Because when you have those things, guess what? Now you get to take inventory and go, God, what have you given me? What have you given me? Now let's go play. So I just encourage you when coveting springs up that that is not who you are. You've been made for contentment. Fight for that. Let Jesus kiss you and remind you of his grace because he is a good father that is in pursuit. Lord, thank you for your kindness and your word. Thank you for what you have for us today. Lord, we just pause and just want to put down the coveting that so easily just kind of drips into our lives, this so easy it is to compare ourselves and become disgruntled, to despise what we have and, and idolize what other people have. It's so much, it seems like it's so much more difficult to run to you and find peace and contentment in your kiss, but it's the only place that heals us puts desires back into the beautiful banks and rivers that you made them for. I pray, Father, that you'd hear our repentance and our cry for renewal and that you would come and kiss us. In Christ's name, amen.